title of today's sermon is Read the Land, and it's taken from Matthew 15, verses 29 through 39. I'd like to begin our time together in the book of Matthew by praying. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for this book written from the perspective of a Jew. Help us, Lord, to understand it in the way that you meant it to be understood. Enlighten our hearts and minds through the Holy Spirit. Use this frail teacher, Lord, to make your word clear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As one of those guys with gray hair, I remember when traveling by car became really popular in the United States. The automobile gave Americans a sense of freedom that could never be experienced by bus or train. Following the Second World War, the economy boomed and it became financially feasible for most families to finally own a car of their own and do some traveling. It was during the 1950s, after the war, that the American Interstate Expressway system was built. Now you could travel at 70 miles an hour, which shortened the distances between cities and places on the east and the west coasts. Coast. This was irresistible for Americans. They fell in love with cars and with driving. Before this, long-distance travel had been a huge hassle, trying to navigate the labyrinth of rural roads and big city congestion. In order to resolve this, Congress approved the construction of the inter- interstate highway system that we have today. However, the credit should go to President Eisenhower. For he had personally seen such a modern highway system in use when he defeated the Germans during the World War. The German Autobahn, as you know, was the prototype that the U.S. interstate highway system was based upon. Before this, motorists had to use those irritating two-lane highways that passed through never-ending small towns. You can still see this, if you'd like, by driving the Pacific Coast Highway of California, Route 1. And you'll see just how irritating it can be to travel long distances on such a highway. Many of the older folks around here can remember their first road trip on such an expressway, like the I-5 in the 50s and 60s. It's ironic, though, that millennials today have no concept of navigating without a GPS system. Way back in the Stone Age, before Garmin's and smartphones were ubiquitous, travelers had to be able to read a road atlas. The same can be said of the Bible. For it is essential for every Bible student to have the right tools, like a biblical atlas, in order to read the land. There's so much to understand in Scripture that just reading the biblical text alone doesn't make clear. Therefore, I recommend that every Christian, every believer, have tools available that will help them to deal with those geographical questions that come up. And it's more than just looking at simplistic maps in the back of your Bibles. As an example of such a tool... Let me show a small portion of the text from the Satellite Satellite Bible. Bible Atlas, maps 1.8 and 1.9, approaches to Jerusalem and the Benjamin region. We will focus on a cross-section of territory that stretches over four regions, 
the Shvelah foothills to the west of Jerusalem, the hill country where Jerusalem sits, 2,500 to 2,800 feet above sea level, then to the east, the rugged Judean wilderness, sloping down to the Rift Valley and Jericho. Jerusalem's latitude is about the same as the top of the Dead Sea. So, to find Jerusalem quickly on any map, from the top of the Dead Sea, come directly west or left. Remember, however, that Jerusalem is over 4,000 feet higher in elevation than the Dead Sea. Note that the area north of Jerusalem was allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem itself sits within the borders of Benjamin. We will see that the most important routes to Jerusalem, even from the east or west, approach Jerusalem from the north, that is, through the territory of Benjamin. On map 1-9, take a closer look at the important area just north of Jerusalem. The area is called the Central Benjamin Plateau. It is relatively flat ground on the hill country watershed, with canyons cutting to its east and west. Only three to seven miles north of Jerusalem, the Central Benjamin Plateau is outlined by the biblical cities of Gibeon on the west, Mitzpah on the north, Geba on the east, and Gibeah, the capital of Saul, on the south. Ramah, the hometown of Samuel, is at the center of the plateau. The central Benjamin Plateau is staging ground for main routes heading to Jerusalem. Control of central Benjamin means access to Jerusalem. A historical example of this can be seen on map 6-2. During the divided monarchy of Israel's history, Basha, king of Israel in the north, came down and captured Ramah in central Benjamin. As 1 Kings 15.16 says, that he might prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Through diplomatic maneuvering. That's an example of what a satellite Bible can tell us when it comes to understanding the geography of Scripture and how important it is to understanding the text. These tools are extremely helpful in understanding what the text is saying. You must not only read the text, but you must read the land. These tools and others like them, like commentaries, should be consulted when one is studying the scriptures. This is extremely important when it comes to looking at texts like we look at today in the book of Matthew. The student of scripture should not just read the biblical text, but should also read the land. Let me warn you that most scholars have no desire nor ability to read the land, for it interferes with their simplistic dogma and their understanding of Scripture. Liberal schools, sadly, do not invite their students to visit the land of Israel. A simple cursory reading of liberal commentaries shows us this and why they doubt the accuracy and the inspiration of Scripture. This is particularly evident in the event that we look at this morning. Most scholars and pastors have no idea of the geography of the land. That's why liberals uniformly conclude that when Jesus feeds the 4,000, it's simply a reiteration of a previous event that took place in chapter 14, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000. Their interpretation confuses these two events. They say it's just a restatement of the first event instead of two separate events, the feeding of 5,000 and then the feeding of 4,000. 
They reject these events as being unique and stand alone for a number of erroneous reasons. First, they argue that Matthew and Mark recorded one event, and yet these were two separate events, as you can see by the comparison of the feedings on the graphic behind me. They destroy the trustworthiness of scriptures, and they undermine its inerrancy by seeing the gospel writers as being errant and recording the same event twice. They completely discount the fact that these events are completely different in content, in structure, and in location. For example, as you can see, the number of people fed differs. The people who are fed are completely different. The dialogue is completely different with these events, and they ignore the first event sets up the second event. The feeding of the 5,000 shows Jesus ministering to the needs of Israel, while the feeding of 4,000 shows his ministry to the feeding of Gentiles. That is after his rejection by Israel as the Messiah King. For this reason, his rejection, Jesus changes his mission. He changes it from Israel to Gentiles. These two feedings are figurative of God's blessing upon people. So then, the key to understanding this change of mission is centered in the geography of where these events took place. The feeding of the 5,000, as I said, occurs in Israel, while the feeding of the 4,000, the Gentiles, occurs in Decapolis, possibly 100 miles east of where the first event took place. These 10 Gentile cities, called the Decapolis, were inhabited only by Gentiles. No pious Jew would ever have entertained living in a Gentile city. The Decapolises were, in fact, 10 Gentile Roman Greek states. Let me fix this. Hold on. Roman Greek states, or city-states, if you will, that were under the direct control of a Roman governor rather than an appointed tetrarch or king. These autonomous city-states minted their own coins, had their own court systems, and raised their own armies. We know from the account of the prodigal son that this was a region where pigs were raised. The Decapolis was exclusively Gentile. Therefore, we must question if any pious Jews would ever choose to live in in a pagan stronghold. They wouldn't. In order to really understand this text, we must understand its geography. We must read the land. On the map behind me, we can see Jesus' travels as we looked at last week. You can see that he traveled from Capernaum on the red line, we'll follow it, to Tyre and Sidon. Somewhere in here he had the interaction with the Canaanite woman. The text we look at now this morning, detailed by the blue line, shows him coming down through Gentile Tory. This is where the uh, Caesarea Philippi was in in the city of Panius, Gentile region, down through, down to the Decapolis, 10 city-states that were here. Jesus leaves Israel, figuratively and geographically. He enters and blesses a Gentile woman, and then he leaves the Gentile region, staying within Gentile territory, never back enters back into Israel, but into the Decapolis. 
Now, the Lord left Israel after they rejected him as their Messiah King, and he went to the Gentiles. With that as our introduction, turn to the text with me, Matthew chapter 15, where we will pick up in verse 29. That's where we left off last week. And if you'd like to use one of the few Bibles, you can find our text on page 975. There, I'll begin reading. It says that Jesus departed from there, that is the Phoenician territory I just pointed out by the blue line, and he went along the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting. As I said, Jesus traveled east towards what is today called the West Bank, and that is uh, Gentile territory. He turned south, going down uh, the outside eastern bank of the Sea of Galilee. He never leaves Gentile territory, and he sits on a mountaintop. And there, he teaches Gentiles. Now, you've probably thought every time you've read this text that he was teaching Jews. But if you look, you can see that he travels across over here, down into, I'm sorry, let me get that right, down here, across, and into Gentile territory. And these are the ten cities. And he probably ended up here in Jerass, which is in modern-day Jordan. I've visited all of these cities, or most of these cities, uh, several times. And we were in Jerash just uh, a, a year ago. It was a beautiful, well-preserved uh, site of antiquity. And in uh, verse 30, we read that a large crowd came to him, bringing with him those, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid him, excuse me, they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. Can you imagine the noise, the turmoil, the crying, the wailing of all of these people that have been sick their whole lives? That didn't come across in the video, did it? But Jesus is surrounded by this multitude of sick people. We don't know whether it was the Night or day, it was pictured in the video, probably erroneously as as being at night. But they came to him and Jesus healed them. So these are Gentiles that are brought to Jesus. These sick people, just as the Jews had brought their sick to the Lord Jesus to heal. So these are Gentiles who have brought their sick to him. We know this is for sure because in Mark chapter 7, in his gospel, we read of the story of one man who was brought at this time to Jesus. Mark chooses to focus on one instead of many. And this man is deaf and dumb. Let me read it for you. Mark writes in chapter 7 that when Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and Sidon, going through and around the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis, there it is, clear as a bell, they brought to him a man who was deaf and mute. And they begged Jesus to lay his hands on them. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears after having used spittle from his tongue. And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to him, Epaphratha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. This is one of those interactions that's hard for many people to understand. Jesus heals a man and then um, commands him, ironically, to tell no one, um, 
to be silent about this. Why is that? Well, it's probably because Jesus didn't want to be known as a miracle worker and have all of those who are sick, those who are lame, those who are blind, coming out of the woodwork for him to heal them. But as we see, they go out and do it anyway, and the crowd just keeps, to get bigger, keeps getting bigger and bigger, and every type of disability is brought to Jesus. Matthew states, sort of matter-of-factly, he focuses on the crowd rather than the individual, that Jesus healed them all, says the text. That included, as previously stated, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the deaf, the mute, and many other infirmities. Mark, in his gospel, makes it quite clear to us that all of these folks were Gentiles, for this was in the Decapolis. Now, in our text, in verse 31... Matthew underscores this fact in an understated way. You might have missed it. We read in verse 31. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Here it is now. Listen carefully. And they glorified the God of Israel. That is, the Gentiles glorified Yahweh. Now more on that in a moment. What this verse should remind us of, though, is those passages that we've looked at many times before from the book of Isaiah. There the prophet Isaiah states clearly, On that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The poor among mankind shall exhort in the Holy One of Israel. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame shall leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. The question is, who are they? You can circle that, highlight it, where it says, and they glorified the God of Israel. They that glorified the God of Israel are Gentiles. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been stated in this manner. They would have known that this was Yahweh. Obviously, this is not a reference to Jews, but to those Gentiles living in Decapolis. They obviously were pagans. They were Gentiles. They believed in a pantheon of gods. They held a worldview that all of Rome and Greek societies held. They believed in a plurality of gods. So they would have assumed that Yahweh existed. They never doubted that. They never doubted that the God of Israel existed. He was just another one of the gods that they might have put on their shelves in their homes. But something had now changed. What is that? They had personally witnessed a display of of the power of Yahweh through Jesus. Something they had never seen before. He surely, they thought, must be a God, a prophet of the God of Israel. And they were moved to praise the Holy One of Israel. They now knew. They had experienced the superiority of the God of Israel over their gods, their many gods. Matthew is driving home the point here that Jesus has left Israel because of their rejection of him and they have turned he has turned to the Gentiles and they have now received him they're proclaiming him as the Holy One of Israel I was hoping for an amen there the blessings that were meant for the people of Israel were now being given to the Gentiles Isaiah predicted this 800 years before it takes place. The Gentiles 
had received him. The Jews had rejected him and they were now being blessed with all of their people being healed. Those with the many maladies that we've already seen a number of times. Just as the Roman centurion had great faith and believed. Just as the Canaanite woman had great faith and believed. These people in Decapolis were blessed. These Gentile pagans were blessed and they recognized who Jesus was. Now that doesn't mean they had saving faith or anything like that. It means they recognized that Jesus was from the Holy One of Israel, that he was sent by the God of the Israelites. We see in verse 32 that when Jesus called his disciples together, he said, I've got compassion for the people because they've remained with me. How long? Three days and have had nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, for they might faint. They might fall over on the road home. Let me warn you now. I'm going to, com- to repeat myself with something that does not sit well with some people. I previously warned you that these texts are not about the compassion of God. If you read the Bible that way, you are sorely mistaken. God has compassion on all people. He just doesn't willy-nilly heal people because he all of a sudden feels feels sorry for them. That's you. That's you. That's people. That's human beings. We fall for our emotions. God is driven by his principles, his values, not his emotions. Jesus doesn't heal people because all of a sudden he feels sorry for them. If that doesn't sit well with you, I'm sorry. God does things according to his plan, his purposes. Now, he does feel compassion, that's true, because he's a God of intellect, emotion, and will. But notice that he performs these miracles for a purpose. He's blessing the Gentile people. This healing is not the point of the text either. Many people want to point to the miracles of Jesus. They, 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 take the, they take the exciting things of Scripture and it becomes their focus. We talked in Sunday school about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Roman Catholics blow the death of Christ out of proportion. Do you know that the death of Christ and and the instrumentality that it took to to accomplish it is only mentioned in two of the Gospels? How important can it be that only two of the Gospels mention it? The point of the Gospel is his resurrection. That's why that cross has no body on it. Jesus is no longer hanging on the cross. He's been resurrected. You see, what you focus upon is usually driven by your emotions. I moved. That's not the scriptures. The scripture focuses on truth, values of God. The healing is not the, 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 the focus of this text. The compassion of Jesus is not the focus of this text. The feeding of the 4,000 is not the focus of this text. It just brings as a tool into focus what is taking place within the narrative of Christ's mission. Christ's mission to offer himself to be the king of the Jews. To bring in his millennial kingdom. What we're seeing here through the ministry of Christ and through the geography, through the reading of the land is the point. 
The point of the Holy Spirit is that these events are simply meant to illustrate the change that is taking place in the mission of Jesus. He will no longer offer himself to be the Davidic king of Israel. He will now turn to the Gentiles and offer them the blessings that were once meant for Israel and will in time, a long time, once again be offered to the people of Israel. Now, notice that Jesus sees the hunger of the multitudes. They had been listening to him for how long? Three long days. They'd probably run out of food uh, much earlier than this. And he sees that they are hungry. He sees their physical state. He focuses on their spiritual state first. He's been teaching them likely for three days. Otherwise, why would they be hanging around? He's been teaching them for three days, and now he notices that they're hungry. He's well aware of that. They're in a desolate place where there's no windcoes or safeways. There's no food available. And he expects that the people might actually have some kind of a physical lack that causes a fainting on their way home. Well, I believe, based on chapter 14, that the twelve might have anticipated this. For in verse 33, we see that they come to him after having taken a survey of what foods were on hand. The disciples said to Jesus, Where will we get so many loaves of bread in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? In other words, there's no food out here, Jesus. There's no bread. Back in chapter 14, you'll recall that that question was never asked. Jesus had to ask them. Now they come to him and report there's no food. Remember the last time it was a little boy with a couple of loaves and three fishes? Based on that, the question is, how could these men be so perplexed about how this need would be met? Had they not seen Jesus meet this exact need before when he fed 5,000 Jewish men plus women and children? Let me ask you this. What should the twelve have been thinking? Should it not have been something along these lines? We know, we've seen this before, that Jesus is able to multiply the loaves and the fishes. We've got some loaves and fishes here. We know he can do it again. We're not concerned how this is going to happen. Let's just get the job done. But then on the other hand, They might have been so influenced by their pagan culture around them that they might have believed Jesus would, I should have said religious culture, around them, that they probably believed that Jesus would never feed those dogs, the Gentiles. Perhaps the twelve believed that Jesus' first multiplication of the bread for the Jews was simply symbolic of the messianic banquet that's supposed to take place in the end times. They surely believed that only Israel was to be blessed. We see that throughout the narrative that is left in the Gospels. The truth is, old prejudices are very hard to break. Had they really forgotten what Jesus had done when he fed the 5,000? I think not. Maybe they just didn't get what all of that meant. One thing is for sure, they don't seem to have learned the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach through his feeding of the 5,000. Their reluctance to believe in his ability to meet the needs of these 4,000 Gentile people should speak volumes to us. Wasn't that just another way, really, to reject Christ? 
At the first feeding, Jesus waited until the disciples discovered that a young boy, as I said, had a meager lunch to share. But this time, Jesus asked them. Look with me at verse 14. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven loaves and a few fish. Do you really think Jesus didn't know how many loaves and how much fish were there? And on hand, of course he knew. He's trying to get to the core issue. This is a teachable moment. Their lack of trust in him. You see, they were trusting only in that which they could see and not what they believed. They looked at the resources on hand and they shook their heads. When he asked them what was available, they should have said, everything's available in your hands, Lord. You can do this. Instead, there's just this meager amount that's ready. Not enough to feed all of these people, Lord. It reaffirms the notion that they lacked in and of themselves to meet the people's needs. They thought it was upon them instead of upon Christ. They lacked the ability to meet the people's needs. You know, we oftentimes do that, don't we? We take the needs of others upon ourselves instead of going to the Lord and asking him to provide and waiting upon him for that provision. Just as in the previous feeding, we see now that Jesus instructs his disciples to have the people to sit down on the ground in verse 35. This time, however, the disciples do not have the people sit in groups of 50 and 100. He simp- they simply instruct the Gentiles to sit down on the ground. Maybe, maybe they weren't as pliable as the Jews were. The Lord instructs them to sit down on the ground. Now, if you remember the last feeding, where did the people sit? They sat down on the grass. So we now know that this is not springtime when the grass has come up as the first feeding. It must be several months later because now they're sitting down on the dry ground that has been burnt out from the hot sun or the animals have come along and eaten all the grass. The Middle East sun is very hot and those sheep get awful hungry. And in verse 36, Jesus took that which was available, the seven loaves and the fish, and after giving thanks to his father, he broke them. He started to multiply them, giving them to his disciples, and the disciples then gave them to the people. This is exactly how Jesus met the needs of the people in the first feeding as well. The same exact methodology is used here. Jesus took what was available then, the little boy's lunch. He thanked his father for it, and he multiplied it and gave it to the disciples who then gave it to the people. He continued to supply through the multiplication of these food until all the people were fed. Notice in verse 37 the exact same reaction to the blessings of the feeding of the 5,000. They all ate and were satisfied. Praise God. Praise God. When he supplies the needs of his people, they're met and the people are satisfied. We read clearly that all are full and satisfied. And then the 12 picked up what was left over of the broken pieces and seven large baskets were full. One of my favorite things to eat is leftovers. Sue and I went out for pizza last night and, uh, I'm sure we'll have leftover pizza at 
at some time. We love leftovers, don't we, honey? Especially you. These folks got their first shot at the food, and they were all satisfied, and then the leftovers were in seven baskets. Now, you'll recall, back in chapter 14, after Jesus fed the 5,000 plus the men on wind, there were 12 baskets left over, remember? But here there's only seven. Why? Why, after feeding the Jews, are there 12,000 left over, and after feeding the Gentiles, there's only seven baskets? Have you ever wondered about that? Hmm. Most, of our, most of us are familiar with the significance of the number 12 in the Bible. It's, of course, the number of tribes in Israel. It's the number of, that corresponds to the number of sons that Jacob produced, that the 12, uh, 12 tribes came from. And if you look at the feeding chart, or comparisons of the feedings, if you put that chart up again, most Bible students give weight to the number 12 because it is also the national number of Israel. But the number seven is also significant to God. The number seven is corresponding to the days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. It's the Sabbath number, Sabbath day number, day seven, that he instructed Israel to worship him. I think it's likely, however, that this number seven represents the idea of completion or perfection. That is, God rested on the seventh day, God has finished feeding the people, and they ate and they were satisfied. It could, however, possibly be related to the number of Gentile nations that were in the land of Canaan when Israel was instructed to enter and eradicate them from the promised land. During the conquest of Canaan, God commanded Israel to drive out, and he says specifically, the seven Gentile nations. Well, the 12 tribes of Israel occupied the land, didn't they? But not all of it. And they drove out the seven Gentile nations, but not all of them. So these two miracles could be figurative of God's mission having failed to the 12 tribes of Israel and now being sent to the seven Gentile nations of the world. This is reinforced by two specific Greek terms used in these two accounts. Now you're going to have to be staying with me on this. This is going to be a little bit technical, if you will. There are two different words used in these two texts for the word baskets. In the feeding of the 5,000 Jews plus men and women, the 12 baskets were of the kofinos variety. That's the Greek word. That is a basket which is small, made of wicker, and meant to be used by Jews as they traveled. It went over the shoulder and hung from their waist. They would carry their food in this basket to keep it from being contaminated as they traveled. But the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, we have the Greek term for baskets, is spurus, which is a much larger basket that was used uh, for containing large shipments. It was made of rope instead of wicker. And in each of these baskets, you could put in 50 loaves of bread. This is the same exact term that's used to lower Paul from the city wall of Damascus when he had to escape in Acts chapter 9. So we have a small Jewish basket used in the first feeding, and we have a large Gentile basket used here in this text. It's noteworthy to us that each of these 
exact references is restated by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew 8. You can read those for yourselves if you'd like. And in each of those, he uses all of these specific numbers and references and the terms for the baskets. So he notes the exact number of people fed and the Greek words for each of these baskets is used as in the original texts that describe the events as they happened. Obviously, these details are significant in the two feedings and shows that these are separate, distinct events meant to illustrate something clearly which is taking place in the narrative of Jesus' ministry. In verse 38, Matthew records the numbers, just as he did in uh, Mark, uh, excuse me, in Matthew 14 with the first feeding. Those who ate were 4,000, and here we have that notation again, besides women and children. So once again, we have the numbers and the indication that it was purely men, but there were women and children. So if you calculate, as scholars have done, the numbers would be more around Eight to 12,000 people were fed when you include the probable number of men and women. Eight to 12,000, where the last one was 15 to 20,000. So this, in fact, is a great miracle and shows the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it also shows a change in administration, a change in dispensations, if you will. The mission of Jesus was changing from taking the offer of the kingdom to Israel and now moving on to an offer to the nations of the world, to the Gentiles. The Jews had rejected him, remember? His family rejected him. His neighbors in Nazareth rejected him. The Jewish leaders, as the representation representatives of the nation of Israel, had rejected him. So he turns to the Gentiles who proclaim him the Holy One of Israel as represented by the Roman centurion who had great faith, the Canaanite woman who had great faith, and these Gentiles here who proclaim him to be the God who is superior to all of their gods. Now in verse 39, we read that Jesus, probably tired and exhausted from teaching for three days and healing all sorts of people, sends the crowds away, and he got into the boat, and he came to the region of Magadan. Where in the world is Magadan? Can you put up that uh, map of his travels again, please? Do you have that, Danny? Whoever's back there? Nope, the other map. Oh, yeah, that's it. Sorry. Is this thing going to work? Oh, there it is. The feedings took place here in the Decapolis, probably in um, Jairus, as I mentioned. Jerash, I should say. And Jesus got into the boat here, and he probably traveled straight across. There's um, a place that's known here, and there's a place that's known here. So he could have gone up, or he could have gone across. I'm going to say it's, it's the home of Mary Magdalene. Oftentimes people had the names of the cities that they were from. And so Mary Magdala is the name of the town, or Magdalene, as she is called, uh, is probably the place where this happened. It's gone by a number of different names. Today, it's called uh, Mag- Magdal. It's been called Dalmanutha in the past. It's been called Magdala. But apparently Jesus arrives with his 
entourage of people, his, his 12 disciples and maybe a few more, and he is immediately confronted, as we will see next week, by Sadducees and Pharisees once again. They are spoiling for another battle with Jesus, as we shall see. So what does all of this mean to us today? Well, I'd like to remind you, once again, I'd like to drill this home, if I could. Underscore this, highlight this. You can read the text of the Bible. That doesn't mean you will understand it. The only way that we know this was Gentiles, you probably read this and thought Jesus was feeding 4,000 more Jews. These are Gentiles according to the geography. If you're not reading the land, you're never really going to understand the Bible. What does that mean? My wife and I talked about this last night, and she said, well, does that mean we can never understand the Bible? No, that's not what it means. It means you need to have the tools accessible for you to be able to read the Bible accurately and understanding it. And that's also why God gave you great teachers like Bud Clark to help you understand the scriptures. So the question for you this morning is, do you have these tools readily available? The atlases in the back of your Bible are not good enough. Thank God... We live in a a culture that has an internet. You can find these tools available for free on the internet. If you will just do a little bit of, of searching and bookmarking, you can go to that site every time. The satellite Bible that Dan and I showed you this morning is on the internet free for you to use. What a wonderful tool for you to be able to understand the meaning of the geography of Israel. And if you haven't been to Israel as of yet, you, each and every one of you, should go. Do you know that people in the past times did not have the ability to go to Israel? You had to be rich. You had to be famous to travel like that. You can do that very inexpensively today. You should go. Go to the land and see it for yourself and be overwhelmed with the truth of Scripture, not from the Bible itself, but how the land confirms everything the Scripture says. Don't just read the text. Read the land. Secondly, do you really trust what the scripture says? Or are you like these disciples? You only trust what you can see. There's a lot of Christians like that. They want to live by one miracle after the the next. Oh, I really believe in Jesus. He healed me. They trust in what they can see. The Bible clearly instructs us that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. I thought I'd get more than one amen there. We believe based on the truth of Scripture, not on something that happens to me. God said it. I was taught this as a young believer. God said it, and I believe it. I don't need any miracles in my life. I believe God because the word of God says so. I don't need to have bread and fish in my hands to know the Lord's going to take care of me. I trust him with little or with much. Do you look to your resources to validate your faith? I trust not. The ultimate source of every blessing in life is from the hand of God, not from the IRS, not from my employer, 
And certainly, it's not a giveaway from the church. Our blessings come from God. Finally, are you holding on to the prejudices of the past? Do you think God can't do something because, well, he doesn't do it for people like that? Our God loves all people. He has compassion for all people. He wants the best for each and every person that he has created. I encourage you, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him for the needs of your life being met. Trust him to overcome the old biases that we've been raised with in the past and see people as he sees them. He loves them because he created them. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you for the land of Israel, that it's not in the hands of the enemies of Christ any longer, but it's in the hands of your people. We look forward to the day the Lord Jesus Christ sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. He returns and he will rule over his people for a thousand years. Lord, we look forward to that with great anticipation. May it be in our lifetime. If not, Lord, help us to be patient so that we might return with you clothed in white as we conquer evil. And Jesus reigns. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.